Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Regulation Around the World podcast. I'm Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge at Norton Rose Fulbright. And this month's hot topic in financial services is horizon scanning. Joining me today are colleagues from Australia, the United States and Europe, who will share their thoughts on some of the key developments that we can expect to see in 2022. But before I do that, I should just touch on two points. First, in next month's regulation around the world update, we will touch on the financial services regulatory aspects concerning the sanctions that have been issued in response to the terrible events in Ukraine. In the meantime, on our Regulation Tomorrow blog, we have issued a couple of helpful postings covering the governance considerations for regulated firms. Second, I just want to spend a couple of minutes focusing on some of the key reforms this year in the United Kingdom. When you look at our Around the World update, there's a lot going on in the UK, and the same can obviously be said for a number of other jurisdictions too. A key UK reform, which has been the subject of previous podcasts and will also be the subject of future podcasts, I'm sure, is the UK Financial Conduct Authority's proposals for new consumer duty. At the core of the proposed new rules is a new principle for business that a firm must deliver good outcomes for retail customers. The FCA expects to make new rules by the 31st of July this year, which would likely come into force in 2023. The scale of change required is challenging on a number of levels for firms, and there's no easy shortcut to compliance. There is also a broad programme of work following the UK's departure from the EU, and this includes the Future Regulatory Framework Review, the Wholesale Markets Review, and the review of the overseas framework. On the Wholesale Markets Review, it's worth noting that we posted on the Regulation Tomorrow blog an interesting speech from the SCA called Where Next for UK Market Structure. In addition, regulatory divergence from the EU will also be a continuing theme this year. And as a final comment on the financial crime front, the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Bill is currently being fast-tracked through Parliament, and among other things, this will create a register of overseas entities. In a nutshell, the bill provides that any overseas entity wishing to own UK land will need to identify their beneficial owners and register them. Generally, a beneficial owner needs to be registered if they will hold more than 25% of the shares or voting rights in an entity, can appoint a majority of its directors or have some other significant influence or control over it, including through a trust or partnership structure. So that's a brief overview of UK. We're now moving on to some of our colleagues in other jurisdictions. In this section of our podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Stephen Howard, a partner in our financial services group in our New York office. Um, Steve, In our regulation around the world update on horizon scanning, we picked up on one of the most significant developments in the US financial services sector, this being the US Securities and Exchange Commission's recent proposals for new rules and amendments intended to bring greater transparency and accountability to the private investment fund sector. Steve, to begin with, for those listeners who may not be familiar with what has happened, can you start by summarizing some of the SEC's proposals? Thank you, Simon. Very much appreciate you asking me to join. 
this regulation is very important regulation for private funds in the United States. To, to mention it out, it affects over 5,000 advisors of private funds and over $18 trillion of assets in private funds in the US. So it is a once in a decade proposed regulation, set of regulations, which has sweeping effect and surprisingly has not received much press or publicity here in the US. Um, what this regulation, set of regulations is intended to do, what the SEC is trying to regulate is really uh, uh, characterized as falling into two uh, initiatives. Uh, the first initiative is to regulate further registered, SEC registered investment advisors who manage private fund assets. And then the second part of it is registering all investment advisors, whether or not they're SEC registered. So unregistered investment advisors are also very definitely covered by this. And I think that's one of the main reasons why there hasn't been that much comment on this. I don't think most of those unregistered advisors are sufficiently informed of these SEC developments so they don't know what's coming. So all the more to the purpose and the importance of podcasts such as this. So um, to spend just two minutes on characterizing the details of these two parts, the first part being registered investment advisors to private funds. Um, if this rule is adopted as it's proposed, uh, all registered advisors would have to issue quarterly reports, which for the first time in the US would standardize all fees and expense informations for private funds. So they would look very similar to prospectuses for public funds for the first time in the United States. That is hugely important. It has a lot of detail on bringing clarity to how investment performance fees would be calculated and it standardizes all the costs so that for the first time in the US, private funds can be compared to one another. So very, very big change. There are two other changes for registered advisors. Uh, an annual report that's audited by an independent public accountant uh, would be required. Uh, that's never been required across the board. It is for some funds, but now all private funds would have to have an annual audited uh, financial statement. And then the final uh, part of, of this for registered advisors is that if a registered advisor is involved in the capital raise of, of a secondary offering, there has to be a fairness opinion which is the case in public transactions uh, for public uh, uh, funds, uh, but for the first time would be required for private funds and their advisors. So that's the first part. And as you can see, it's sweeping. Um, this, the second part uh, of the regulation uh, addresses all investment advisors, and it goes more to, toward very specific uh, regulations for in particular, uh, which deal with prohibiting practices, existing practices. And again, the SEC is looking back over 10 years since the Dodd-Frank Act in uh, 2010, and it's accumulated all of its enforcement proceedings and all of its uh, audits over a 10 year, 11 year period. 
um, and uh, has it's now reflected in what the SEC is trying to regulate for the first time uh, with all advisors for private funds. Four parts here. The first part is certain sales practices are just prohibited. So as a for instance, uh, any uh, services that are not performed for a fund would be prohibited. There are occasions where managers of funds uh, say that they're entitled to be paid for a monitoring service or for an investigation service. The monitoring never occurs, the investigation never recurs, but the manager still gets paid, that would be prohibited. Along with that prohibition would be, uh, there would be no non pro rata fees or expenses. If there's fee or expense, it has to be applied across the board to all investors in the fund. Likewise, uh, there's restrictions on clawbacks for the first time for advisors. Second category of regulation is conflicts of interest, where um, fees are charged by uh, the advisor to the private fund to the underlying portfolio management companies. Um, in many instances, those would either be restricted or prohibited. Again, certain types of compensation schemes for managers of these funds would be prohibited. And uh, finally, the fourth part of the rule uh, goes to preferential treatment in the form of side letters uh, for private uh, fund investors. Uh, basically, there would be a prohibition on any provision in a side letter, typically concerning a preference for a large investor, say with redemption rights that they can get out of the fund before other investors, that would be prohibited. Any right that has quote unquote, a material negative effect on another investor would be prohibited. And then with regard to other forms of preferential treatment, they would be prohibited unless they're fully disclosed to all investors who are current investors and prospective investors. So I'm just gonna stop there. That's a lot to absorb, but this is clearly a very sweeping important set of regulations. Thanks Steve for some sweeping changes indeed. I just wanna ask you another quick question. The SEC commissioners, commissioners were themselves split on the proposals. Is this something which usually happens with SEC proposals? It's a good question. Uh, yes, um, under uh, the uh, constitution for the SEC, uh, it uh, uh, has uh, uh, both Democratic appointees and Republican appointees. They often split on a uh, once in a decade set of regulations like this. They're bound to be major, major differences. So not unusual that uh, uh, there would be a split, not at all. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, my next question, um, public comment is expected on the SEC proposals. Um, where do you think most of the comments will focus on? Well, sadly, I think most of the comments are going to focus on that first category. Uh, just uh, summarizing again, uh, the regulation uh, sets forth uh, the uh, quarterly statements, the annual audit, and the requirement for a fairness opinion in certain transactions for registered advisors. And then it has these prohibitions on sales practices and conflicts of interest 
for all advisors, registered and unregistered. So I think the pushback from the industry will come from the registered advisors. Most advisors are registered these days, but there are probably over a thousand advisors to private funds, maybe more that are not registered. Uh, and they just aren't really up to date with the significance of this set of regulations that are being proposed. So they won't be pushing back because they're not, not tuned in to what's going on. So I see the industry uh, responding uh, from large registered advisors pushing back on the first three requirements. Again, quarterly statements, annual audited financials, and a fairness opinion. Uh, but uh, at least as significant as that, perhaps more so, uh, is the second category, which goes to sales practices, side letters, uh, certain compensation arrangements, and preferential treatment uh, for certain investors which um, will be commented on, but I don't think nearly as much because uh, those are uh, going to affect mostly the unregistered advisors uh, and, um, um, uh, and uh, they're uh, evidently not uh, commenting nearly as frequently as the large registered advisors. I talked with one of the SEC staff who uh, uh, is examining the comment uh, letters. They're about halfway through the comment period, which is 60 days, and that's what it's shaping up to be. Okay, Steve, thanks. And, and that's my final question. It relates to the comment period. Um, what happens after the comment period has closed? And also, is the expectation that we will see the final SEC rules sometime this year? Very good question, Simon. Uh, the first part of the question goes to um, uh, the uh, what we can expect to see after uh, April 11th. April 11th is the final day for comments. Um, I, the what the SEC typically does is uh, it uh, uh, reviews all the comments, uh, prepares uh, another uh, SEC release explaining its analysis of those comments, and then. Uh, makes modifications to the uh, current proposed rules and sets forth a date when the rule would become effective. In this instance, I would not be surprised if they extended the comment period. They don't often do that, but uh, given the, uh, the sweep of these regulations and the significance affecting $18 trillion of assets in America, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, they extended the comment period. But in any event, my expectation, whether or not the comment period is extended, is that there will be a rule in the fall, which the SEC announces, uh, which will uh, have transition uh, period attached to it, whereby uh, this time next year, most of these proposals uh, will be uh, in effect or going into effect subject to the transition period. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for your great update. I'm now delighted to be joined by John Arlen, a financial services partner in our Sydney office. Looking at this month's regulation around the world update covering horizon scanning, it's very noticeable that there will be a lot going on in Australia this year. From a cross-border perspective, perhaps the biggest news from Australia 
is the new regulatory and tax framework for the corporate collective investment vehicle. John, it's great to have you here. Could we start? Could you tell us a little bit, our listeners, a little bit more about some of the opportunities that this new regime presents to global investment managers? Yes, thanks very much indeed, uh, Simon. It's lovely to be speaking with you. Well, indeed, at long last, we can herald a new era in investment funds for Australia. On the 10th of February, the Senate passed the much-awaited collected Corporate Collective Investment Vehicle Legislation, or CCIV. Um, that was passed with bipartisan support. And as a result, the new funds framework is now expected to commence from the 1st of July 2022. This marks a significant milestone in the development of Australia's funds management industry, broadening out the range of investment structures. The CCIV offers a corporate fund structure which is more familiar to overseas investors and combines flow-through tax treatment. It's been, it's been well documented for over a decade now that the lack of an internationally recognisable collective investment vehicle has caused opportunities to be missed in the Australian funds management industry. A key concern has been that foreign investors are not sufficiently familiar with the unit trust, uh, that is the general model for Australian funds. Being less common overseas, a lack of clarity around this structure has contributed to uncertainty and perceived risk for foreign investors. The CCIV has therefore been designed with a view to increasing the competitiveness of the Australian managed funds industry internationally to attract that offshore investment. So consistent with what we've seen from other jurisdictions implementing similar fund regimes, we therefore expect that superannuation or pension funds, global investment managers, investors, and a range of other financial and fundraising institutions will be assessing now how they can take advantage of the opportunities presented by the introduction of the CCIVs in Australia. Thanks, John. And I should just also mention to our listeners who want to know more about the CCIV reforms that John and his team have put together a client briefing note which can be found on the Norton Rose Fulbright website. Okay, I just want to turn now to Australia's foreign financial services provider regime, which allows foreign financial services providers or FFSPs to engage in certain activities without having to be authorised. The Australian Treasury is consulting on a new range of exemptions for FFSPs at the moment. John, could you touch on what some of these are? Yes, absolutely. So the, the Federal Treasury has now released exposure draft legislation implementing exemptions from Australian financial services licensing requirements for foreign financial service providers or FFSPs. So this follows through on the federal government's intention announced in last year's budget to restore previously well-established relief for FFSPs and create a fast-tracked licensing process for those that wish to establish a more permanent operation in Australia. It also leverages feedback provided through Treasury's consultation paper on possible options for how to address the relief. So the proposals broadly break down into three parts. Firstly, a revamped professional investor exemption. Secondly, a new comparable regulator exemption, which is the replacement for the current sufficient equivalence relief. And thirdly, relief from the fit and proper requirements for certain foreign firms. 
Broadly speaking, these exemptions reflect on a positive move by Australian lawmakers to support access to Australian markets and have been welcomed. A key point for foreign firms to note, though, is that for those currently relying on the sufficient equivalence class order or individual relief, and for those operating on the basis of the current professional investor exemption, they are facing the prospect of a mandatory notification to ASIC in order to move on to the new exemptions. The timing of this notification process and when ASIC will be able to process notices will be particularly critical for FFSPs for whom the current relief is scheduled to expire at the end of March 2023. Thanks, John. That's a really interesting point regarding mandatory notification. And finally, um, individual accountability continues to be a hot topic in a number of jurisdictions and I hear that changes are happening in Australia. So John, as a final question, can you give our listeners the headlines regarding the new financial accountability bill? Absolutely, thanks. So um, FAR, F-A-R, or the Financial Accountability Regime, is the federal government's response to recommendations from the Hain Royal Commission to extend BEAR, or B-E-A-R, the Banking Executive Accountability Regime. And that extension being to registrable superannuation entities and regulated insurers. So the proposed bill was introduced into Parliament last year and has since been submitted to the Economics Legislation Committee for review. The bill extends similar bear-like accountability requirements to super and insurance entities, but replaces the current regime. The proposed regime will therefore apply to regulated entities and their directors and senior executives in the banking, super and insurance industries, and is intended to improve operating culture and governance through increased transparency and strengthened accountability requirements. So unlike BEAR, FAR will be administered by APRA and ASIC, Joint guidance is expected shortly on how compliance with the regime will be enforced by those regulators. And the regime will have a staggered application. So the regime is proposed to take effect for the banking sector from the later of the 1st of July this year, or six months after commencement of the regime, which is expected by the end of the year. And for regulated insurers and super, the proposed commencement date is the later of 1 July 2023, or 18 months after the commencement of the bill. Thanks, John. Very interesting. And also thanks for this great update that you're providing us with. And as I said at the start, there always seems to be a lot going on in Australia. And listeners should be aware that John and his team produce a monthly online wrap-up of key regulatory developments, which can be found on the Northern Rose Fulbright website. Again, thanks, John. Great update. Thanks, Simon. In this part of our podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Anna Carrier from our government relations team in Brussels. Anna, 2022 will be a significant year for the European Union in terms of the development of EU financial services legislation. And to start off with, in the prudential space, a key reform on the horizon will be the changes to the CR4 and CRR to take into account the final Basel III reforms. 
One of the key changes will be a new requirement for certain non-EU firms to set up an authorised branch in the EU. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more? Hi, Simon, and yes, of course. So just perhaps by way of quick background, um, the European Commission published legislative proposals for the implementation of the final element of Basel III package um, in November last year as part of the so-called banking package. The proposed legislation is currently undergoing review by the European co-legislators, and this is still in a relatively early phase. So the package is quite broad and almost warrants a separate session to go through it in any sort of detail. But just to flag that it ranges from a um, proposed introduction of the controversial output floor, reform of a specialized lending exposures regime, through to introduction of an obligation for banks to identify, disclose and manage ESG risks. But in terms of the proposed new requirement concerning branches, of third country credit institutions in the EU that you have referred to. This is clearly one of the most controversial elements of the proposed package. And those amendments to the CRD framework include um, provisions that would mandate member states to require a third country undertakings seeking to provide a wide range of banking and investment services in their territory to establish an authorized branch, unless such an undertaking would rely on a limited reverse solicitation exemption. The scope of activities that would require such a mandatory authorization is very wide. And for example, this would include taking deposits, lending, provision of financial leasing, provision of payment services, provision of guarantees or commitments, trading on own account or account of customers, money broking, portfolio management and advice. There are also detailed conditions concerning authorization of third country branches, including capital requirements, liquidity requirements, rules concerning insolvency or resolution of third country branches, internal governance and risk controls, booking requirements and other. But this is not all. In addition, the proposed legislation introduces powers for national competent authorities to require a third country branch to apply for authorization as an EU credit institution being a subsidiary of a third country undertaking and such powers would be available to national competent authorities when a third country branch engages in activities those being intra-group or with external counterparties that are in contravention of internal market rules or where the third country branch meets the systemic importance indicators and poses a significant risk to the financial stability of the EU or a member state where it is established. And those systemic importance indicators are yet to be developed by means, of, um, by means of secondary legislation. That said, as I have mentioned before, these proposals are currently at the relatively early stages of review, and we know that they have sparked already some controversies uh, amongst legislators. So we should really watch very closely how the discussion evolves. I'll stop here. Thanks, Anna. I agree with you. Certainly one to keep an eye on. Uh, as my second question, changes are also on the horizon for MIFID II and MIFIR, the EU's key pieces of financial services legislation. Can you briefly tell us what we can expect to see in 2022? Yes, of course. Again, by way of very quick background, the Commission published its capital markets package also in November last year, including proposed changes to MIFIR and MIFID. And these changes are quite targeted and focus mainly on the amendments 
to provisions governing the consolidated tape provider, so the CTP regime. Again, by way of uh, reminder, the CTP regime was originally introduced under the MIFID legislation, subsequently transferred to MIFIR, but in the end did not result in the establishment of commercial CTPs in the EU. And this is one of the biggest ambitions of the Commission is to change that, and hence the current review and the proposals to significantly change the regime by moving away from a model based on competing consolidators, consolidating market data from various um, execution venues. Instead, in accordance with the proposal, a CTP model based on a single consolidator would operate a centralized hub-and-spoke model for each asset class, shares, ETFs, bonds, and derivatives. And the single consolidator would be selected by ESMA following competitive tender process and be appointed for a five-year term. A separate selection procedure would be organized for each asset class. The intention behind such a pro process is to select consolidator that would be, and I quote here, entirely independent of both market data contributors and market data companies. But in terms of the um, market data contribution and revenue sharing for this new CTP model, the commission to proposes to base it, to base this regime on a mandatory contributions model, whereby all market data sources would have to make standardized core market data available to market data aggregators. And in order to compensate those market data contributors, the commission foresees minimum revenue targets underpinning the revenue participation schemes that would form part of the selection process for a single consolidator. But the commission proposals are not just about the CTP regime mainly, but not just about. Again, due to the time constraints, I will only briefly flag that other changes currently on the table include a proposed prohibition of a payment for order flow practices, already sparked, again, some controversies amongst co-legislators, some targeted adjustments to share trading obligation and derivatives trading obligation, removal of the controversial open access regime for exchange-traded derivatives, as well as targeted amendments to pre- and post-trade transparency regime and clarifications concerning authorization requirements for entities operating multilateral trading systems. I will stop here, but we can expect intense discussions of the Commission's proposals in the course of this year. So again, something to, mo to, to monitor very closely. And prospectively, by the end of this year, we might actually see some agreement between the co-legislators. So to watch out for. Thanks, Anna. I'm sure we'll get you back to talk more about the MIFID to MIFIR reforms as the year goes on. Um, as my final question, um, some of our listeners may not be familiar with another new piece of EU financial services legislation called DORA. Can you summarise for our listeners what DORA is and how it may impact non-EU entities? Of course, I'll be happy to. So perhaps starting with the explaining the acronym. So DORA stands for Digital Operational Resilience Act, a piece of legislation proposed by the European Commission in September 2020 as part of a so-called digital finance package. So as its name suggests, DORA is the first European-level legislative initiative aiming to introduce a harmonized and comprehensive framework for digital operational resilience for European financial institutions. And the intention behind DORA was to address gaps in this European sectoral financial services legislation, which to date provided for fragmented approach to, to operational resilience. Again, we could spend an entire session discussing the content of DORA, and it's a very detailed piece of uh, upcoming legislation. But to provide just a very quick overview, 
DORA will have a very broad application and in principle, it will cover all authorized European financial institutions. So credit institutions, payment institution, institutions, investment firms, also newly authorized crypto asset service providers, administrators of critical benchmarks and others. There's a long, long list of those that will be within in scope. It will also bring within its scope information and communication technologies, so ICT third-party service providers, and this is something new in the European legislation. So while the entities subject to DORA include European authorized persons, we all know that a large number of such companies are members of international, sometimes global groups, which often apply holistic approach to, to, to operational resilience. And as such, DORA may serve as a sort of a benchmark reference, given the detail and the breadth of requirements um, included therein for such, for such a companies. In, to this end, I think it is worthwhile to mention that DORA sets out requirements applicable to financial entities in respect of all spectrum of ICT risk management, including contractual arrangements between ICT third-party service providers and financial entities. Um, this includes an obligation to have in place comprehensive internal governance and control frameworks for ICT risks, obligation to establish and implement a specific ICT-related incident management process to identify, track, lock, categorize, and classify ICT-related incidents. And as mentioned earlier, one of the objectives of DORA is to provide a framework for principle-based management of ICT third-party risks, covering everything from documentation and record-keeping pre-contractual analysis, information security, audit termination rights, and exit strategies. So it's really, really packed in detail. Um, DORA is currently going through the final phases of legislative review, so we should see it being adopted very shortly. There will be some transition time before the provisions will become applicable, but it won't be very long, most likely around 24 months. So the, the, the time to start preparing for its application is, is, is now. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. That's really, really helpful and also lots to look out for from the EU this year. In this part of our podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Sebastian Prichu, who recently joined us as a financial services partner in our Paris office. In addition to his practice, Sebastian is also a senior lecturer in banking and financial law at two universities in Paris and has a PhD in financial law. The PhD covered collateral in financial markets. Sebastian, uh, welcome, and it's really great that if you've joined us today. And to start with, uh, 2022 is a very important year for France, given that it has the presidency of the Council of the EU. France has been a key member state in contributing to the legislative texts on sustainable finance. And there's also been some notable domestic developments. To start with, can you give our listeners the headlines on the domestic reforms? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Simon. Indeed, uh, France has been, for France, sustainable finance is a key priority. Um, and the financial, financial Markets Authority, so the French AMF, has actually highlighted these priorities again this year. Clearly, what they are doing is part of a dedicated mission to the French authority. They really are in a way to have their voice being heard at the European Commission on that. They have been keen on developing 
um, a specific commission since July 2019, actually, which is the Climate and Sustainable Finance Commission, which has included um, actors not only from finance, asset managers and banks, but also corporates and academics also who provide their views on what we should do um, to, to fight against greenwashing and to be able to provide clear standards for the industry. So clearly the mission of this commission is to convey messages to the EU, but also to ensure that the transition of financial markets towards really a carbon neutral economy. So they are really here to provide clear guidance, policies, procedures to all the actors, also to help them notably on something quite difficult to implement, which is the Article 8 of taxonomy regulation um, on the reporting requirements. And a lot of asset managers currently are really working hard on this implementation. Uh, some of them actually have green labels like the Amundi asset managers and others, they will have these labels which enable them to be actors in the uh, proactive, also in the greenwashing uh, fight. Um, the, we should also stress that the AMF has created specific modules for the knowledge of professionals. They have training, they have certifications uh, on that. So really a specific core of regulation, which, is, which makes sense because actually France was pioneering on that and, and had a specific regulation, including before the EU taxonomy. So I would say that asset managers and some corporates were already ready on that, but obviously they still have a, a lot of work to do. So really French authorities is helping them, help them to phase in that. Thanks, Sebastian. That's really interesting. I just now want to move to something different. Um, whistleblowing. Uh, the subject continues to attract a lot of attention, and I believe that changes are on the way to the whistleblowing regime in France. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, Simon. The France had also a pioneering role on that because there, there was, France was among the nine of the EU member states uh, to offer a framework uh, on whistleblower protection, uh, according to the European Commission. So, when, so now we're in the process to indeed adopt uh, the European Whistleblowing Directive. That's at the level of the French Parliament that is expected very soon. So we all, already had this framework. And the, what we tend to do in France on that implementation would really to go to maintain the same level of guarantees to go a bit more far in the implementation with the institution of what we call the defender of rights to whistleblowers, which is really protected by, uh, as a principle of French law. So that's really high because that's at the level of the fundamental rights under French law. Uh, so which means a lot of protection, including before courts. And also if we have tomorrow a law, which would be passed to the parliament, but against that principle, that would not be possible to, um, to adopt that law. So that's really a strong protection. And the other types of protection would go certainly beyond, I would say, the European protection would be that it's cross-sector. So uh, that's not just for finance, that's not just for asset manager or insurance, that's really cross-sector for any type of industries. And also the whistleblower is protecting against what he may have heard, including outside the corporation itself. So that's extremely broad. So that's, I would say, a broader interpretation, a broader scope of protection of whistleblowers. And again, they have a specific difference in France through the defender of rights, 
which has also itself guarantees of independence through which are constitutional rights. Thanks, Sebastian. And as a final question, I just want to pick up something with you that we discussed earlier. That's on the topic of crowdfunding. That's a subject our lawyers, including yourself, advise on. And in particular, can you tell us about the impact of the application of the EU crowdfunding regulation in France? For example, uh, did it change anything to the pre-existing domestic framework? What are your expectations of the impact of the EU regime on the French market? Well, that's a very interesting question because France here had a crowdfunding regulation before the EU, such as other EU uh, countries, and they have actually almost implemented that framework. And this will provide some changes. Um, the, the market was quite active in France um, since it has been set up. Uh, in a nutshell, you do have a change in a way that you had domestic regimes in France. There was investment services providers. Uh, these investment services providers will need to be to apply for a specific status, which is the EU status, if they want to provide services throughout Europe. So they cannot continue just being investment services providers and they're in the way most of them currently apply for their new status to be able to passport their activities in Europe, which is really the great news of that, is that the ability to not to stay within the limits of France, but to be able to cross border the activities in Europe. So they are in the process, these providers, of applying for their status. But you also have specific domestic statuses, which are what we call the crowdfunding advisors, the SIP, and the crowdfunding intermediaries for loans. So the crowdfunding advisor of the domestic status doesn't exist anymore. So clearly this type of actors will need to apply for the EU status. And you also have the crowdfunding intermediaries we are active exclusively on loan. They also will be able, they will have to apply for the EU status. They can remain within the domestic regulation, this one, but it means that it will be extremely limited because they will not be able to passport their services. And, most of them will certainly apply for their new status. So that's a change in a way that all these actors of crowdfunding are currently on the way, and they have until November to do that, applying for the, for the new uh, type of license, which will, again, enable them to passport the services throughout Europe. Now, it changed something in terms of limitation. You, you have thresholds in the European regulation in France related to what you can propose in terms of offers per project. There was a limitation in France for equity, which was 8 million euro, which actually has been lowered by the EU regulation to 5 million. It means, does it have a practical impact? Not so far as I understand it, uh, because most projects were clearly at the level of 5 million or below. Uh, for some projects it may, uh, which means that new projects will have to comply with the new limitation. Now, there is the good news is for loans because loans were subject to a limitation per project of 1 million. And now it has increased to 5 million, which is great news for loans. Um, and actually, because we are talking about limitation on loans, there was another limitation on loans in France, uh, which is the limitation per investor, which was limited to 2,000 euro per investor. This limit will not exist anymore. It has been replaced by a warning system for non-sophisticated investors telling them what are the risks of your investment. So that's clearly 
a change, a major change for, for France. But the major, the, the most important change for all the EU jurisdiction will certainly be the passport, the ability to passport the services throughout Europe. Now, I would add one thing, Simon, is what we are now expecting in terms of change, but that's related to the MICA regulation, is to see what, what will be the, the sort of crossing this regulation with MICA regulation, i.e. the ability in the future to be able to register securities which are intermediated through these platforms on blockchain. This is really what we are expecting now because there is a French regime on blockchain, but as we know, there is a pending regime in the EU on blockchain. So how this regulation is crossed with each other, this, this is really to, to, to be followed in the next coming months. Thanks, Sebastian. Uh, absolutely. And I think we will pick up with you in a couple of months' time to, on further developments in that area. Great to have you with us today, Sebastian. Thank you. Thank you, Simon.